0: Good morning, everyone. It's good to be together, to worship together, continue to worship together. I invite all the children to come and sit on these front two benches, please. Good morning. How are you all today? You've been enjoying the snow, day off from school, going to school late, all that good stuff. Well, that's wonderful. I'd like to talk about several things with you this morning. And I'm going to start with a verse. In, it's, a, it's a verse in Ecclesiastes. I have my Bible open to the wrong spot. Ecclesiastes 7 says this A good name is better than fine perfume. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. So, what do you think the Bible is talking about when it talks about a good name? Back in Proverbs 22, it says, A good name is rather to be chosen in great riches and loving favor than silver and gold. And then in Proverbs 20, verse 11, it says, Even a child is known by his doings whether his work be pure and whether it be right. So, What do you think the Scripture or the Bible is talking about when it talks about the importance of having a good name? What do you think? What's a good name? Does that mean your parents chose a nice name for you? Does it mean something different? What do you all think? What do you think? Yeah, Jesus had a good name. That's great. What What do you think the Bible means when it talks about a good name? What makes someone have a good name or not a good name? What do you think, Allison? You're not sure? Okay, that's good. Well, let me ask you this way. Do any of you have friends named Ahab? Any boys at school named Ahab? Any girls named Jezebel? Hmm. Any boys named Judas? Saul? No? Why not? Why do you think... Parents don't name their children those names. What do you think? Yeah, thank you. Your parents don't like for you to have those names. Right. That, now we're getting there. It's because the way we live gives our name a reputation. You don't know anybody named David or Nathan or Daniel or Abigail or Mary or Rebecca? Any of those names? Yeah. That's because those people gave their name a good reputation. So the Bible is talking about a good name. It's actually talking about your reputation. Now, you remember the last verse I read here? It said that even a child is known by his doing. So even as children, we are, you are, starting to give your name a reputation, Fact is, I heard someone at taught school many years say when they got married it was kind of hard to choose names because all the students had it kind of affected the way they thought about names. So, yeah, we are all in the process of giving our name a reputation. So what kind of reputation are we giving our name? Is it a good reputation or a reputation that's not so good? It says a good reputation is better than fine perfume. Now, you boys are not into perfume, but the girls might be getting into it a little but it says a good reputation is better than having fine perfume. And then back in Proverbs, it says that a good name is better than gold and silver and and things of great value and great riches. So, it's even better than that. Okay. So, we're all in the process of giving our name, our reputation, and we're blessed here in our congregation to have Uh, new children being born into our congregation every year. We have some, some real young children here that are just born, that are just real small, and they haven't started giving their name a reputation. Well, maybe if they cry all night to their parents, but the rest of us, they haven't. But when they get old, their name, they will give their name a reputation. And the first scripture I read talked about the day of death being better than the day of one's birth. Now, this was coming from a man who was dealing with some discouragement. But I thought about that a lot. This past week I've been meditating on this verse. You know, we do make a bigger deal over a death than we do a birth. We don't have a viewing when there's a birth, and I'm sure the mothers are glad that we don't all come and line up and view the new baby, but kind of after church we do a little bit. But, yeah, there's... uh, Death is something we need to think about, that's the end of our life. Uh, it all goes. It also says that it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. And I think that helps us understand what the Bible is saying is when someone passes away, it causes the rest of us to think about life and the way we live and the importance of living right, and not just to give our name a good reputation, but but to please God and to live in a way that's pleasing to Him and to other people. So I'd like to talk a little bit about birthdays now. Y'all, what are these two things here on the, on the wall? What do you think it is? It's a calendar. Uh, what, what is alike? There's, there's something that's different on those calendars. I'm not talking about the pictures. There's something that's different on those calendars, and there's something on those calendars that are alike. So what is, uh, uh, Micah, what is different? They have different years, all right, and then what's alike on them? What do you think? That's right. If you look at these two calendars, they match perfectly. The first day of January is on a Monday, and there's a leap year here, February the 29th, and the last day is on a Tuesday. These two calendars match the whole way through. Now, what year is this calendar? What do you think? Uh, which year is that? Is that this year or next year or last year? This year, That's right, this year. All right, what year is this calendar? You folks in the back can't see very good. What year is this calendar? Uh, what do you think, Lauren? 1968. You think that was a long time ago? Was that a long time ago? You think the dinosaurs were still alive then? You know, not think so. No, I promise they weren't. It wasn't that long ago. Well, you see, this is kind of a special calendar to me. My mom gave me that calendar. Why do you think she gave me that calendar? That's the year I was born. That's why I know there weren't dinosaurs back then, okay? But you know what is also special to me? This is only the second time since I'm born that this calendar is accurate. It hangs in my office all the time. This is the only second time since I was born that this calendar is accurate for the whole year. There's a lot of years it may be accurate up till the 28th of February, but after that, it's not anymore. See, I was born on a leap year. In fact, just so is my wife. I was born on a leap year. So, a day has, a week has seven days, so a calendar can start on any of those seven days, and then leap year comes every four years. But some of you mathematicians are better at this than I am. I don't know why, but this is a fact. You have to go through four cycles of leap years before your calendar matches again. So it only matches every 28 years. So 28? Anybody? (laughs) I can't believe that. No one's 28. All right. So the last time this calendar was right, I was 28. And yesterday I turned 56. So it's right again. Can any of you children tell me how old I'll be when it's right again, if I live that long? 56 and 28 is 84, right? Anybody here that's 84? Was there anybody here that was 84 yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, Lita. Lita turned 85 today, so it's, it's Lita's birthday. Anyone that's 84 over here? Oh, yeah. So yeah, the next time the calendar will be right, I'll be the same age as Miriam and almost as old as Lita. So anyway, um, I just wanted to share that with you children. You all like numbers. You like math. So that's how it works out. So if you're born on a leap year, your calendar only matches. If you're born, you're 28, you're 84, and that's probably the last time. So yeah, thank you all. for. Lord bless you all. You can go back to your parents. I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 126, Psalm 126. This is part of the what they call Songs of Degrees or Songs of Ascent. They were, these were actually songs. The psalms are Hebrew songs. It was a songbook for the Hebrew people. But these are songs that were sang as they took their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem to worship or wherever they went to worship. They would travel along and they would camp and they would sing. And for those of us who like camping, I kind of like these psalms. It reminds me of them sitting around the fire at night after they'd walked all day and, and just sharing together and singing these songs and, and worshiping God. Uh, but they aren't all happy songs. They aren't all songs that, uh, that talk about joy. This psalm starts with that. It talks about the Lord turning in the captivity to Zion. We were like them in a dream. They, they, brought, they came back from captivity, and it was like a dream come true. Then was our mouth filled with laughter, and our tongue was singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Now our text verses are verses five and six. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth weeping and bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing bringing his sheaves with him. I give credit to Brother Nathan Crowder for expanding this psalm to me. Or In a minister's meeting, he shared from it in a devotional. And it really touched me as I realized how he explained it, and I believe it's true. It talks about, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. And the, the, the word picture that he drew for us is this. There's difficult times. Maybe there's famine, and you're low on food, and your children are hungry, and maybe they're crying at night to go to bed hungry. Springtime comes. Father goes to the back part of their dwelling somewhere and brings out a sack of grain, and the children are overjoyed. Father has saved grain for us to eat, and they they visualize it being ground and turned into bread or, or whatever and they're going to have food but father walks through the living room in the kitchen and he goes out to the field and he goeth forth and weeping bearing precious seed yea doubtless shall come again with rejoicing bringing sheaves with him the idea is he took that seed that was so needed for food but he went out and he scattered it on the ground weeping as he went Because his children were hungry and weeping as well. Why did he do that? Because he was looking beyond the present to care for the future of his descendants. Had they eaten that seed, they would have then starved. But he put the seed in the ground in faith. God sends rain, God sends sunshine, there comes a harvest. And they reap 30, 60, 100-fold, whatever it is. And the family comes in at harvest time rejoicing because they have food and they have hope for the future. Yea, doubtless. So he's weeping as he goes out sowing. Shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. That's the picture uh, that that Nathan shared for us, and I believe it's accurate. Uh, So... This morning is another birthday. Can anyone tell me what the other birthday is today? I'll give you a hint. It's the 499th birthday of something. What do you say? That's right. It's the 499th birthday of the Anabaptist movement. And when I seen it it was on a Sunday, I liked it. I wanted to share on it. So I want to share, on that with, share with you that this morning. Next year is the 500th anniversary. I know there's a lot of organizations that are working. They're putting together material to to have ready to come out and to publish next year. But I'd encourage us to be thinking about it this year in preparation for it. There's, there's going to be a lot going on next year, at least if the Lord tarries and allows it to. But There's a lot of, of people working on writing and, and preparing things. Uh, in anticipation of the 500th anniversary. So I'd just like to go through that this morning, and it's a little bit of a different type of a message. Um, Think a little bit about that, and think about the passage that we looked at in Scripture of sowing in tears with the anticipation of reaping in joy. Brief history of Christianity, we know that God sent Jesus into the world. He lived. He taught. suffered, he died, he rose again, um, he ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit. The church began with a, with a tremendous uh, velocity, and along with it came persecution. It wasn't long at all until Stephen was martyred, uh, the believers were spread, and that continued on, off and on, more on than off, for the next 300 years. The, the the true Christians were were oppressed. They were persecuted. They were scattered, and they lived very difficult lives. The Roman Empire split. Constantine had one portion of it. I believe his brother-in-law Maxim. I can't say his name. Maximus or something like that had the other half. Maximus had the greater army. Maximus had Rome. He had the upper hand. But Constantine wanted to bring it together, and he went out to meet his brother-in-law in in battle to bring the Roman uh, Empire back together. On the night before, according to his story, on the night before the big battle was to take place, Constantine fell into a troubled sleep, and he dreamed a dream, and in his dream, he felt that he seen that there was a vision that that had the cross in it, that he should go forth in battle under the banner of the cross. So the next morning, I don't know what they used, but they painted crosses on the shields of his soldiers. They went into battle, and against the odds, they were victors. He contributed that victory to the banner of the cross in which they fought. True or false, I don't know. That was a change. That took place in October of 312. He called together the powers that be in February of 313. They put together and published the Edict of Milan, or Milan, however you want to say it. It allowed religious freedom, and the wording of that, I can't quote it exactly. It allowed just religious freedom, including, I quote, the cult of Christianity and all other religions that people we were free to now express. This gave birth to a very flawed expression of Christianity, a form of what still exists today through the Cat Roman Catholic Church. And although I believe there were, always, there were always small bands of true believers throughout the Middle Ages, uh, this Pilgrim Church book is a good on that it would pick up some of that. Uh, Throughout the Middle Ages, or the Dark Ages, some call it, those people did not receive significant historical attention. No doubt, it was not a large number. That period of time known as the Middle Ages, or the Dark Ages, or medieval times, was 1,200 years of economical, social, and moral decline. The morals, even, of the religious people were horrific. They were bad. The church and state became completely intertwined, and when a child was born, the parents were to have it baptized into the church of that canton, or that county, or that town, wherever you want to call it, within 30 days of the birth of that child. And there was other ideas there that we don't have time to go into. They thought that would save the child's soul, it would get rid of original sin, and also it gave them the power to control the citizens of a given geographic area. So every child becomes a member of the church within a month of its birth, and also part of the state government system. In the late 1400s, early 1500s, the wind of change began to blow in, uh, in earnest, and things began to change. And I'm going to uh, pick up now from the book, The Anabaptist Story, by William e. Stepp, and pick up just a few things here from that book as we move through. On a crisp October night in 1517, the 31st to be exact, what's the 31st of October today? It's Halloween. A black garb Augustinian monk made his way undetected to the castle church the place was an insignificant medieval German town named Wittenberg. The swift determined strokes, he nailed one of the most inflammable documents of the age to the church door, which served as a village bulletin board. Within a fortnight, what's a fortnight? Two weeks. All Europe was echoing the sound of that hammer. A month later, the hardly audible taps became sledgehammer blows, assailing the very citadel of the Roman Catholic Church. This Austin Frere of that October night was Martin Luther and the apparently innocent Latin manuscript was his first against Rome, the 95 Theses. Martin Luther nailed that up. There was a lot had been going on undercurrents before that of unrest, but it seemed to ignite the desire for many people for change and for uh, freedom from the bondage of of being forced into church membership where you lived. and. The bondage of relics and, and worship and prayer to Mary and infant baptism and, and all of those types of things that, were, were, that people were studying the Bible and coming to an understanding that they were not being scriptural as they should be. In that eventful year, in 1517, another German-speaking priest was wrestling with a tantalizing new Greek text, born high in Tolenberg Valley, the Swiss Alf, seven weeks after the birth of Martin Luther, there seven weeks apart in age, Eurek Zwingli was already becoming a thoroughgoing humanist and a great admirer of Erasmus, and he goes on to talk about uh, his life, and he accepted the call to the people's priest, and he resolved to preach nothing but the gospel in 1522. And the Reformation in Zurich had quickened its pace, and Zwingli was indisputably in control. And this came in spite of his admittedly immorality before coming to Zurich. Yes, many of these men who uh, came to faith lived very immoral lives, as did many other the priests of that time. And the open opposition to some Zurichers to his call. During his brief span of three years, he succeeded in overcoming opposition and enduring the people to himself and his calls. And he was more of a, wasn't dependent just on nailing something on a wall or just preaching, but he would, he started having Bible studies and, and gathering people around him. And he went on and, and built up from that. There was a young man by the name of Conrad Grebel that came and became one of his students. Conrad Grebel's father was a member of the great council of the city of Zurich. He was a man of means. He was a man of of uh, association and this Conrad had attended uh, prestigious universities and had learned uh, Greek and Latin and, and different languages and these men would come together and they would study and see what the Bible had to say about the things that they were struggling with and their place in Christianity and how it should be lived out and how it should not be lived out. Switching titled The Son of Zurich, Conrad Grebel. Conrad Grebel and over a dozen other men in Zurich were now engaged in intense Bible study for themselves. Philip Manns in his mother's house held their evening meetings. He knows Hebrew. Conrad is tutoring pupils in Greek, and the crippled bookseller. Has a class running regularly, and it goes on to say that there are students, there are bakers, there are farmers. There's uh, the common folk were coming in, and they were mingling with these educated men who had uh, had been taught, and they were learning, and they were there was excitement. They had the Bible opened up to them, and Conrad begins to push back against his his former uh, mentor Zwingli for not moving fast enough, and Conrad had a brother-in-law Vatican, and he was writing letters back and forth to him who was a man of power and influence. And Conrad was, was growing restless, and, and he was becoming frustrated with the slowness of how they wanted to move because he was, needed to be a believer's baptism. He was convinced they needed to get rid of the, the relics and the mass and, and all these things that, that had held the people in bondage for so long. And he was growing very restless uh, in this as he waited. For his mentor and his brother-in-law and others to, to move on. During this time, he also began to become very poor because he was falling in, uh, uh, he was falling out of the good graces of those around him. And his, I believe, his father maybe cut his pension by two thirds, and a number of things took place. He also had met a lady and married her. And his family was unhappy because she wasn't of the same social class that they were. And he was he was getting tremendous pushback there. And they had a number of children. And now we're moving into January of 1525, the year of the birth of, of Anabaptism. On Friday, January 5, 1525, Conrad and Barbara welcomed to their family a tiny new daughter, giving her the biblical name of Rachel. Five days later, an open discussion before the council, Conrad, Felix plans, George Blowrock or Bluecoat, and another name, I can't, uh, Ribulum Wehum Ribulin are challenged on the question of resisting infant baptism, and someone else comes in with power and prestige and starts to challenge them, and he end up writing against Conrad and, and tarnishing his reputation for many years. The pace now quickens. Within 48 hours of the discussion, one of the radical men interpreted the sermon on the topic of infant baptism there in Zurich. And then uh, Zwingli is starting to pull back more, and he gets up and preaches a message, a fiery message of, of support for the political system of the day. And Conrad is not knowing, what should I do? I have this baby daughter. The law says she has to be baptized within 30 days. She's growing older by the day. The pressure's on him. People are watching He writes to his rich brother-in-law and says, With four mouths to feed, I'm desperately in need of finances. Can you help me? So what I want us to understand here is that he's coming down. These men were coming down to the same spot that this sower was in the book of Psalms who went out to sow. They knew that to follow their convictions were going to make them financial paupers. They would be expelled from where they lived. They had no idea what would happen to their wives and children if they continued to follow their conviction. He asked for an opportunity to, to have an interaction or a, a debate with the council. They refused that. The council met on Tuesday night, and a discussion was a foregoing conclusion. On Wednesday, the council announced that all infants in the canton of Zurich had not been baptized, must be ceremonially administered to them within one week. He's threatened, you have one week to baptize your infant baby. She's two weeks old and still unbaptized. On January 21, 1525, the day dawns on Conrad Grebel's City. The rulers have not yet finished. This is the morning of the anniversary today, 499 years ago. The rulers had not yet finished with the stubborn Bible students assembling at the Lamont under the chairmanship of Diethem Rost, the richest citizen town they counseled together to put teeth into their law and baptism. Zurich must be protected from the inner circle who do not hold citizenship in the canton must be out within one week. They're expelled from, from Zurich, but Conrad and Felix are not mentioned. They may hold more of their gatherings, but not to discuss the question of baptism openly. No more disputations will be granted them, and if they have matters of faith discussed, they can see the mayor or one of his three assistants. They were not to speak publicly anymore. That announcement falls on a little group with the weight of a sledgehammer. That evening, darkness is falling on this same Saturday night as 16 saddened men gather quietly in the home of Philip bonds A few minutes walk from the great church square. Their mood is solemn. This is a forbidden meeting. Within a week, the four of them must be gone, including their main teachers. Severe consequences of their stand are now clear. The Christian city of Zurich will no longer tolerate their testimony as publicly banded them to disgrace to the town. As they ponder the next move, it suggested they should have a baptismal service here and now, irrevocably separating themselves from the world, which now stands ready to persecute them in the name of Christ. George Bluecoat, or Blue Rock in particular, is ready to take this momentous move. Fear presses on their hearts. Connor knows all too well that such an act may cost him what little earthly treasure he has left. The precious citizenship in Zurich, where he could raise his family in honor and peace, is at stake. After a searching discussion, the men knelt to pray. When they rise, the man with the Bluecoat, Blue Rock, he was quite the character, he turns. To his new friend, Conrad Grebel, the natural leader of this strange new fellowship, the 33-year-old priest makes a tense appeal, Conrad, I beg you for God's sake, give me true Christian baptism. It is a moment without precedent since the, however many years it was since Christian faith had settled in the tribes of Europe through the Catholic Church. For seven centuries since baptism had been administered, and the innocent babies of the Swiss tribes passing on the cult, whether or not there were repentance. These men knew well and they realized that they are doing and they count the cost. The priest professes his faith in Christ and Conrad Grebel reaches for water. He pours it on the bowed balding head of his fiery disciple. He cannot know that this act has inaugurated a fellowship that shall spread beyond Europe to the very to every continent. Now Blorock moves himself around the circle, baptizing each one upon his request. They commissioned each other to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world and covenant to an unshakable bond to keep the faith, Conrad Grebel and his brothers. Their church is not subject to any authority but Christ. It is now a believer's church for the first time in many centuries. They moved out from there. Evening after evening, they said torches were seen, men walking the streets and going from house to house, and they carried hasty meetings in farmhouses, groups of tailors, shoemakers, uh, vineyard growers, students, non-assigned pastors, whoever the common people would meet, and they would baptize. Connor himself has less than a week to get out of town. The authorities are after him, unless he intends to, to baptize his baby daughter, Rachel, and he has no intention to do so. Daily the Lord's Supper is shared, a wooden dish but a simple dipper are used to pour water on those being baptized and they continue to serve and to reach out to those around them. And that went on. Each of those different men went out to different places, and they continued to reach out and to serve and to emphasize this. The brethren emphasized the absolute of a personal commitment to Christ as essential to salvation and a prerequisite to baptism. For the first time for many years, now there was opportunity for adults to come and to confess faith in Jesus Christ and repentance and baptism as was emphasized in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament. Persecution breaks out for real. The first Anabaptist known to have died for his faith was Eberly Bolt, a preacher who was burned at the stake in Switzerland in the hands of the Roman authorities on May 29, 1525. So the first actual burning at stake only four or five short months after this night of baptism, the birth of Anabaptism. And after the death of Boat, there became a period of martyrdom for the Anabaptists that would continue to a greater or lesser degree of intensity throughout three centuries or more, and the number of the executed will never be completely known. In some countries, the records were not kept, and others, the records are incomplete. However, from the minutes of various trials from eyewitness accounts and from the Anabaptists themselves, there is abundance of material. Many hundreds of people died for their faith. A little more than a year after Conrad Gable had instituted Believer's Baptism among the Swift Brethren, he was dead. He went out. He, Conrad had poor health from his immoral lifestyle that he lived. He was imprisoned, put on bread and water, freed, imprisoned again, in and out. Finally, while he was out uh, preaching and having meetings in fields, he uh, came in contact with a plague that was going through the area that year and he died a natural death. Conor Grebel died a year and eight months after his baptism. I'll move on now to the next person that we want to talk about. His name was Felix Mons. He was also very influential. If Graebel, uh, Mons was the Apollo and Blow Rock the Hercules. <laughs> Next to Graebel's importance in early life the Anabaptist movement, Manns surpassed him in eloquence and popularity. It was Manns who became the first Anabaptist martyr to die at the hands of the Protestant and the first to die in Zurich. He goes on to talk about his life. Immediately at the Baptist church, the brethren began house-to-house visitation in Zurich and Zillikon, and baptisms were frequent. The Lord's Supper was observed in the simplest manner upon several occasions. Mans and Blaurock spearheaded the drive for converts in the Zurich area. In the early days of the movement, Grable attempted to carry the Anabaptist message to leaders of the Reformation far and wide, and they continued their efforts among farmers and artisans and continued on. On January the twenty-fifth, on January the fifth, fifteen twenty-seven, two years after his baptism, he was sentenced to death. Because contrary to the Christian order and custom, he became all involved in anabaptism. He was sentenced to die. It should tie his hands behind or tie his hands and feet together, bend him over. Put his arms down below his knees and put a stick through, and put him in a boat and take him out to the river. After the sentence was pronounced, he was placed in a boat and just below the the hut, he was moved downstream to another fish hut that was being anchored in the middle of the Lamont River. His arms and hands being bound, he sang out with praise, "Into thy hands, O Lord, I commit my spirit." And a few minutes later, the cold waters of the river closed over the head of Felix Mons on January the 5th, 1527, 3 o'clock, Saturday afternoon. Two of his writings are, uh, or at least one, maybe two of his writings are preserved in the Osman, the German hymn book. And he wrote this before he died, with gladness I will sing now, with heart my heart delights in God, who showed me such forbearance that I from death was saved, which never hath praised thee Christ in heaven, who all my sorrows changed. George Blaurock. The Hercules of Anabaptism surpassed both Grebel and Mans in the extent and effectiveness of his ministry. Severely beaten with rods on the day of Philip Mons was put to death. He spread Anabaptist faith for two and a half more years before his own execution for heresy. He was burned at the stake on September 6, 1529. He was an interesting man. Uh, he was not an educated man, but what he lacked in learning he made up for was zeal. Uh, one of his... Uh, Things he's famous for is to go into a preaching service where he thought heresy was being taught, and he would attempt to just take over the pulpit and to preach his conviction. The tragedy of Mons' conviction was compounded by the shameless treatment of George Blaurock. As troublesome as he must have been to Zwingli and the city fathers, there's no justification for the beating he received at the hands of the executioner. On the same day Mons was drowned Uh, Blarock was stripped and beaten with rods until the blood ran down his back from the site of the execution to the city gate. Once through the gate, then the Baptist preacher shook the dust of the city off his clothing and bid farewell and moved on. On August the 4th, 1529, Blarock and another layman were taken to custody. They were sentenced to death and his last will and testament he wrote there while he was in prison. And then he also was uh, executed for his faith. He's the one who has two two hymns in the Osmond. Lord God, how do I praise thee from hence and evermore that thou real faith didst give me by which I thee may know? Forget me not, O Father, be near me evermore. My spirit shield and teach me in afflictions great. Thy comfort I may never prove and valiantly may attain the victory in this right. They were burned at the stake. Yeah, I missed how they, they, he and this other man were burned at the stake. All right, moving on, last but not least, Michael Sattler. Michael Sattler is probably best known as the Get. Uh, the struggling and fragments, what was left of this Anabaptist because of the fear of persecution, he was able to draw them together, and a group of men got together and put together the Sladeheim Confession, and I believe he was the one who was responsible for recording of the convictions and their beliefs that were put together that day. He was not a college man like some of the others were, but he was a man of great wisdom, a man of great tact, and a man of foresight, and a man in which the Spirit of God rested firmly upon his life. He also was sentenced to death and to be taken out and, and put to death in the most cruel and unusual way. There was a two-day trial prior to his death. The sentence was, was read upon him, and then the trial was brought upon him, and the sentence was that he was to be Severely tortured, he shall be committed to the executioner. The latter shall take him to the square. There first shall cut out his tongue, then forge him fast a wagon, and therewith glowing iron tongs, tear pieces from his body, and then on the way to the site of execution, five times more as above, and then burn his body to powder. And that was what actually took place in his life. Trying to find where it's recorded. His, oh, yeah, his death is a little later in the book. But i just like to, for us to think about what he went through. During an hour and a half while the judges deliberated, Sattler was ordinately threatened and ridiculed, and some cried out, When I see you, get away, I will believe in you. Another seized a sword, and see, by this we will dispute with you. And they continued to harass him while he was waiting for the sentence to be carried out. Seeing nothing could be done to destroy Michael Sattler's calm self-composure, even the sentence to which reference had already been made failed to shake him. An eyewitness wrote of Sattler's conduct. All this I saw myself, so to testify of him so bravely and patiently. The prelude to the execution began in the marketplace. A piece was cut from Sattler's tongue. Pieces of flesh were torn from his body twice with red-hot tongs and then forged to a cart. On the way to the sentence of the execution, the tongues were applied five times again. In the marketplace at the site of the execution, still able to speak, the unshakable Sattler prayed for his persecutors, and after being bound to a ladder with ropes and pushed into the fire, he admonished the people, the judges, and the mayor to repent and be... Then he prayed, Almighty, eternal God, Thou art the way and the truth, and because I have not been shown to be an error, I will with Thy help to this day testify of truth and seal it with my blood. And as soon as the ropes... Of his wrist were burned off, Sattler raised his two fingers, two forefingers of his hands, giving the promised signal to the brethren that a martyr's death is bearable. Then the assembled crowd heard coming from his seared lips, Father, I commend my spirit into thy hands. Three others were executed, and after every attempt to secure a recantation from Sattler's faithful wife had failed, she was drowned eight days later in the river. Perhaps no other execution of an Anabaptist had such far reaching influence as that of, of the brother here that we just, uh, yeah, of Michael Sattler, the brother here we we're just talking about. Execution, the story of this execution found its way throughout Germany, Austria, Switzerland. Lutheran reform, even Catholic witnesses were never quite able to get away from the scene of that infamous day in Rottenburg. The impact of that carried on. You know, those who were out to eliminate This movement of faith became so frustrated They said the more of them we kill, the more there are What do we do? They said they would seal their faith with the blood of their life And they did And that's all that I'm planning to share this morning on it But I was thinking this past number of weeks leading up to this We owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to these courageous men and women and the hundreds that followed in their footsteps. We got up this morning. Most of you, some of us didn't, most of you drove drove by various churches on the way to come here, to come to the church of your choice. You were not forced to take your baby to be immersed in water so many days after it was born, Uh, and a lot of other things, that we have freedom today that grew out of this movement. These men sealed with their lives and with their blood. Back to Psalm. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. And he that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. So may that be a challenge to us in the coming year. I encourage us to think and to read. I just went to the bookshelf and grabbed a stack of books uh, all about the Anabaptists. you want to borrow books to read be happy to loan them to you. Read the Martyr's Mirror. Pick up on uh, what went on there. Some churches study the Martyr's Mirror on Wednesday night. Maybe we ought to consider doing that in the years ahead during this anniversary. But I think the thing that really impressed me the most in studying for this and you is, is the eyewitnesses looked at them and they concluded that they did it all out of love. They said the unmistakable drive for the evangelism was love. And I've been thinking a lot about that. Do we share the gospel out of duty or out of love? There's a lot of talk about are we losing zeal for for missions as a church, as a people? And is it because we're thinking it's a duty that the church has to do, Or do we follow the example of these people and it was their act of love that they went to their neighbors in the next town and the next town and shared the truth of the faith in Jesus Christ and baptism and commitment to following Christ without question, what made them so effective and so attractive to the world around them as they were losing their lives. Can we have a song?